0: to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Good morning. We're going to be continuing our worship this morning as we look at Exodus 25 and what God has to say to us through Exodus 25. And it's another one of those passages uh, that when we get to it, you think, okay, all right, next. Uh, it's one of those passages that often when we are going through a reading through the Bible kind of thing, that we have a tendency to tendency to either skim or completely skip over. But in honor of the word of the Lord, would you please stand with me as we read from Exodus 25 this morning? Beginning in verse 1, it says, "...the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they may take for me a contribution." from every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution for me and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold silver and bronze blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen goats hair tanned ramskins goat skins acacia wood oil for the lamps spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us a surety of who you are through your word. Even through passages like this, you show us who you are. Thank you for choosing in your grace and your mercy to reveal yourself to sinners. People who don't deserve to know you, yet you bend yourself to show yourself to us. And I pray that you will do that this morning. Show yourself to us through your word as only you can do. May you be honored and glorified through the preaching of your word here this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. Uh, The rest of the chapter and chapter 26, it goes on to talk about um, how God wants them to make the Ark of the Covenant. How many guys think Indiana Jones when I say that? (laughs) Yep, yep. I still wanted to just show some movie clips, but I figured I'd stick with the Bible. Uh, So... Uh, you know, he goes through how you should make the Ark of the Covenant. He talks about uh, how to make the table for the bread. He talks about how to make the tabernacle and the curtain for the tabernacle. Uh, You know, he tells them uh, the curtain for the tabernacle is to have these kinds of colored threads in it. And um, the curtains are supposed to have 50 loops each, not 49, not 51, 50 He talks about the lampstand for the tabernacle and how many arms it should have and and what kind of almond blossoms it should have and how many calyxes each arm should have. Anybody know what a calyx is? Yeah, so we read passages like this and it's like, what does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? How many calyxes are on a lampstand in the tabernacle? I may be the only one who thinks that, but that's often what we think. That's why we often kind of skim or even skip over passages like this, because what does it have to do with me? What color of thread was supposed to be used in the curtain? I want to say, when we come to passages like this and we say, what does this have to do do with me? We're asking the wrong question. We're asking the wrong question. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness about me. So Jesus says that the scriptures are there to point us to Jesus. Now when Jesus said that, had the New Testament even been written yet? No. So what was he talking about when he said the scriptures point to him? He's talking about the Old Testament. So see, when we come to the Old Testament in passages like this and skip over them because what does this have to do with me? We're asking the wrong question. The question we need to ask is what does this reveal to me about who God is? That is the primary purpose of Scripture. Now, does Scripture apply to us? Absolutely. Does Scripture... Tell us how we should and how we can live our lives in a way that honors God? Absolutely. But the primary purpose of Scripture is not about us. The primary purpose of Scripture is to reveal to us who God is. So that's the question we should ask when we... Oh, thank you so much. That's the question we should ask when we come to passages like this that seem so caught up in minutia, minute details... So maybe the problem isn't with the minute details, but how I'm approaching these minute details. Am I saying, what do they reveal to me about God? And these two chapters where God is talking about the color of thread, the measurements of this, the dimensions of that, what kind of wood should be used to make that, what, how many calyxes should be on it. Calyx is a part of a flower, by the way. I had to look that up. I, I was curious. Uh, That reveals something to us about God. It reveals to us, and this passage is essential to our understanding of what God is doing in our midst. And not just in our midst, but in the midst of the world. And, you know, when you read, you know, 50 loops on the curtain, now I see what God is doing in the world. How many guys get it now? Yeah, it it doesn't just pop out to you. Well, Liam, apparently it does, but... uh, uh, I want to start off with us looking at uh, a Psalm, Psalm 42, verse 1, and it's a passage you most you're probably most familiar with, and just so you know there's going to be a lot of. Um, scripture in this, going to other scriptures, feel free to flip with me. Uh, If you look in your bulletin, you'll see a list of almost all the scriptures we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, So the list is in there. I encourage you, be good Bereans. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. So that list of scriptures is in there for your reference. You can go and check up and make sure that I'm not like way off feeding monkeys at the zoo with something or Something like that. So, Psalm 42, verse 1, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. So, as the deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Um, you know, when I see this verse illustrated uh, for posters or whatever, you know, you see a, a deer in this serene, beautiful, lush green forest dipping its head into a gurgling brook. Beautiful, beautiful illustration that has nothing to do with this verse. Nothing whatsoever. The, the word f- uh, used for pants for actually comes with uh, a meaning of a sense of desperation. Imagine that lush green forest three years into a drought. That nice, gurgling brook is now just a muddy stripe in the bottom of that stream bed. The lush green forest is shriveled, dry, and brown. And that nice little doe stands there looking at the muddy stripe, panting, desperate for a drink of water. That's actually what the Hebrew conveys, a desperation for life. That deer knows that it has to have a drink if it is going to survive. That's the idea that the writer of this psalm is trying to get across. Uh, the, I, Lord, I am at death's door. I am desperate for you. But notice, he doesn't say he's desperate to be rescued for anything. He's not saying, Lord, I am desperate In this financial situation, would you rescue me? Lord, I am desperate in this family relationship that's going wrong. Would you rescue me? Lord, I am desperate in this health emergency. Would you rescue me? That's not the desperation that he's talking about there. Maybe many of us have felt that kind of desperation before. What he says here is, Lord, I am desperate for the rescuer. I'm not desperate for the rescue. I don't care what the situation is, Lord. I just want you. I am desperate for the rescuer. That's the sense of desperation that we need to have for God, that I will die without his presence in my life. Is that your desperation? Or do you only feel a sense of desperation when there's something going on in your life that you need rescued from? Are you desperate for the rescuer? And having said that, how many of us have had situations or maybe have situations in our life that we do need re- rescued from? We do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, in Genesis 3, verses 23 through 24, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is post-fall. This is one of the results of the curse of sin. You know, we can look around at our world today and see everywhere results of the fall. Results of the curse of sin. We see sickness and disease. We see hatred, bigotry. We see injustice. We see wickedness all around. How many of you guys don't like any of those things? But all of those things, as bad as they are, pale in comparison to the worst part of the curse of sin. And that is exile from the presence of God. Exile from the presence of God is the worst part of the curse of sin. I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope. Now notice what he says here. He, he doesn't say... You have no hope in the world because of sickness and disease. He doesn't say you have no hope in the world because of hatred or bigotry. He doesn't say you have no hope in the world because of injustice or wickedness. He says you have no hope in the world because you're without God. You may have sickness and disease, but with God you still have hope. You may have injustice Hatred, bigotry, wickedness. But with God, there is hope. The worst part of the curse of sin is an exile from the presence of God. So when we come here to Exodus, Israel's greatest need was not manna from heaven. Israel's greatest need was not water from a rock. Israel's greatest need was a remedy to their exile from the presence of God. That was their greatest need. Not manna, not water, the presence of God. So here in verse 8, God says something amazing and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Imagine what that have mu- must have been like for these Israelites. Remember, just before this, when Moses was on the mountain, he said, "No Mo-, they said, "Moses, no, you go and talk to him. We are scared to death of him." And now God says, "I want to cure that." I want to draw you into my presence. I want you to live in my presence. Imagine hearing that. God basically saying, I am no longer just the God to Israel. I am no longer just the God for Israel. From here on out, I am the God with Israel. Imagine being one of those Israelites and hearing the God of the universe saying, I am now the God who is with you. Not just for you, not just to you, but with you. And this is what he said to them. I am the God with you. I am here to remedy, to cure your exile from my presence. So he goes on um, for the rest of chapter 25 and 26, on, even into 27, which I'm not really going to get into there. Um, but he goes through giving what materials they need to use to build the sanctuary uh, and everything else about it. And in verses 3 through 7, he says, And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Oh, thank you so much, Miriam gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple scarlet, yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, uh, for the ephod and the breastplate. So he runs through this list of things. Now, how many of you guys have ever gotten clothing as a gift? Most of us. How many of you guys ever got a blue shirt and went, a blue shirt it's not white or yellow or it, it's blue oh my thank you so much. a blue shirt it's blue how many guys besides Liam <laughs> Harold <laughs> um that's good to hear back then that would have been exciting for all of us not just Harold you know to make a blue shirt or blue anything back then you had to go out and collect enough shellfish. Not just any shellfish, a particular shellfish to crush it up and make the blue die. To make the, the purple that they're talking about, you had to have a particular type of worm that you then dried and crushed up and its eggs to make the, the purple. For the scarlet, you had to have a particular type of snail. So You know, in the New Testament, I think it was Lydia was the dealer in purple garments. That meant she was well off. She was well off. Blue, purple, scarlet was luxurious. Because of all the time and effort it took to make these things, when God says blue, purple, scarlet, he's saying the most expensive prized fabrics, the most expensive prized yarns you can get. Gold, silver, bronze, onyx, stones for setting, precious stones for the ephod. The ephod, you guys have ever seen the picture of the high priest where he's got that breastplate that's got all the stones in it? That's what he's talking about. It has 12 precious stones in it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So these were precious, valuable, treasure type of materials that God is saying, let all the people give. Now, at this time, they're out in the wilderness, and because I sometimes have a lot of time, uh, to get those shellfish, they would have had to travel about 350 miles to the Mediterranean where that particular shellfish lived. So my, I was wondering, how did they get all these materials? H- how did they get the blue and the purple and the scarlet? Were they just going to open up some gold mines and start mining gold? Where are they going to get the onyx? Were they going to start, op- hey, look, diamond mine sitting right here. Let's go get some diamonds. How? And I love this. Back in Exodus 12, when they are getting ready to flee Egypt, uh, it's the night of the last plague, the death of the firstborn, and God tells Moses to tell all the Israelites, go to your neighbors, ask for gold, silver, jewelry, clothing. Now, how many guys have you had a neighbor and they came to you and said, hey, do you have any gold or silver laying around? How about purple, scarlet, blue clothing. Uh, you got anything? Can I, can I have it? And you guys go, sure, not a problem. Here, here's my wedding ring. It's gold. <laughs> None of us. And it probably would have been the same for the Israelites, except for one thing. Verse 36 says that God gave the Israelites favor in the eyes of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians would give these things to the Israelites. So the Israelites already had the blue, scarlet, purple, gold, silver, bronze, onyx. They already had everything. And why did they have it? You say, well, because the Egyptians gave it to them. But let's take it to where it really goes. They all had that stuff because God provided it to them. So here God is saying, make me a place where I can dwell with you. And then God says, by the way, you have nothing to offer me that I haven't already given you to make this place. Even later on in Exodus 35, he says that He, there were two particular guys. It's, God said, I am going to give those two guys gifts, knowledge, and skills in every craft trade you can imagine so that they can do these things. So even the abilities and skills they had, God says, I am going to specially gift these two guys to do it, he said, I'm also going to give them to teach it to the other people. So even the abilities they brought with them, God said, hey, by the way, I'm giving those especially for this. Everything they brought to build this dwelling place of God was from God. He initiated it. He provided the opportunity. He provided the means for the Israelites to exist in the presence of God. They brought nothing to this that God did not already give them. Now, if you were to come over to mine and Kara's house and look around, you would be able to tell some things about us. Uh, You'd be able to tell that we love our kids, that we have a lot of them. You'd be able to tell that for sure. Um, You'd be able to tell that we enjoy a very uh, laid-back and simple life. You'd be able to tell that I enjoy woodworking. Uh, you'd be able to tell that I am a mediocre handyman. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things about our house uh, that would tell you about us. And, and this is no different. When God said, this will be my dwelling place, when you look at the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, it tells us a lot about him. First, it tells us that God set the terms for how the Israelites were to worship And relate to him. Remember how he said, not 49, not 51 loops, 50 loops on the curtain. God didn't say, let them build me a sanctuary. All right, guys, go for it. God said, you're going to build me a sanctuary, and I'm going to tell you every single detail about how it's to be done. It's not that God was being nitpicky. Oh, no, I I don't like the number 51, so please not 51 loops, Just, just 50, okay? It just bugs me. Just 50. God wasn't being nitpicky. He was letting the Israelites know that when it came to relationship with him, when it came to worshiping him, God sets the terms. The Israelites didn't do the designing. It wasn't, and the Israelites said unto the Lord, let us build you a sanctuary that you may dwell among us. No, the Israelites didn't say a thing. God said, you build me a sanctuary so that I can dwell among you. And this is how it's going to be designed. This is how it's going to be made. And you can't even make it without me. So the first thing it tells us is that when it comes to worship and how we relate to God, God sets the terms for what is acceptable. He sets the terms. Even centuries later with King David, in 1 Chronicles 17, 1-6, it says this, Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Now, when David says he dwells in a house of cedar, whatever you think of wood, back then, that meant extravagant. That was luxurious. David is saying, I live in this luxurious palace, and God dwells in a tent. He said, uh, and Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, David had really good intentions. How, how is it right for me to live in luxury and God dwells in a tent. That's not right. And God said, no. It's not up to you to build me a temple. Did I ever tell any of my other leaders, hey, I don't want to live in a tent anymore. Build me something. Even then, centuries later, God is still saying, I set the terms. It doesn't matter the sincerity of the motives. It doesn't matter how pure the intentions. God sets the the terms of what is a right and appropriate relationship and response to him. So, that's one thing we learned from the tabernacle. Uh, The tabernacle was a big rectangular affair. It had curtains and a giant rectangle, and then if you walked through that wall of curtains, the first thing you would see would be the bronze altar, which is something that God gave designs on how they were to build it. So the first thing you could tell when you walked into the tabernacle, you would see this altar, first thing you see, and it would tell you one thing right out loud. God is holy. You walk in and face to face you are with the fact that there is a holy God that you have sinned against and without sacrifice there is going no further to him. God is holy. That means he is completely set apart from creation. He is perfection and purity. 1 John 1, 5 says this, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. Every other attribute of God flows from and is perfected in his holiness. How many guys have heard that God is love? He is perfect love because his love flows from his holiness. His holiness is what sets his love apart so that it's a love like unlike any other in this universe. His holiness defines every other attribute of God. That's why in Revelation you see the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not love, 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 justice, just, just, but holy, 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 because his love, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness are all perfected and set completely apart from anything else in this universe by his holiness. You would see that altar and know that as it says in Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. God is holy, we are not It's one of the first things the tabernacle would tell you when you walked in that God is holy. So you've got this big rectangle. You walk through, you see the altar and a couple other things, a big bronze basin. And then back behind that, you see a giant tent. And that's the holy place, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Dun, 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 dun. I get that theme in my head every time I say Ark of the Covenant. Uh, so you would, <laughs> you would walk into this holy place, and there'd be another curtain you would walk through, and there you would see the Ark of the Covenant. And you know we you've probably seen pictures of it. It's this big chest with these angels on top, and their wings are pointing towards each other. Those are the covering cherub, cherubim, cherubs. Yeah, um, and that's the lid. For this ark. What does the Ark contain? First, it contains the Ten Commandments. The tablets that God gave to Moses were contained within that Ark of the Covenant. So, what would you see when you look at the Ark of the Covenant? Well, if you saw Indiana Jones, you'd probably see like people's faces melting or something. That's probably what you would think of. But what you would see when you look at the Ark of the Covenant is that God Is merciful God is merciful like how in the world would you look at the ark of the Covenant and think God is merciful in verse 17 of chapter 25 of Exodus God says this talking about how to build the ark you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold 2 cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit of a, a cubit and a half its breadth and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat and he goes to talk on about exactly how those two cherubim those angels are to look on top of this mercy seat the mercy seat was the lid for the ark so within the ark you have the 10 commandments what was the result of not keeping the Ten Commandments? Judgment. The result of, the ten com- of not keeping the Ten Commandments, in other words, the result of sin, judgment. And God said, within this ark is the law and the judgment co- that comes from failure to keep that law. But covering that law is the mercy seat. Covering the law, shielding us from the law, is the mercy seat. And it's interesting, when the uh, Old Testament was translated into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, the Greek word for mercy seat is a Greek word uh, that I'm not going to try to say, but it actually means one who makes propitiation. That's what mercy seat means, one who makes propitiation. And if you're wondering, what does propitiation mean? Uh, Propitiation, it's not just a Christian word. Propitiation is a word used in just about any other religion, and a propitiation is a sacrifice that a person makes to appease the wrath of their God. In other words, to say, my God is angry with me, I need to offer a sacrifice To make them happy with me. They're angry at me. I don't want them to be angry at me. So I'm going to offer a propitiation. Something to make my God not angry with me. So God is a just God. Exodus 34, 7, he says, I will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. He is a just God. Which means his wrath is turned towards the guilty. And as we know from Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, God's wrath is turned against everybody. In other words, a propitiation is necessary. Some kind of offering, some kind of a sacrifice to turn God's wrath away from us. So we bring the offering of our good works and God says, not good enough. We bring the offering of turning over a new leaf in life and being a better person, and God says, not good enough. We bring the offering of, I'm going to come to church every Sunday, and God says, not good enough. We bring the offering of, I'm going to read my Bible and have my quiet time for four hours every morning, and God says, not good enough. And we are left with no Hope because we have no propitiation that can ever turn the wrath of God away from us. No hope. Unless we look at Romans 3. Romans 3.23, a verse most of us know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But let's keep reading. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God said, Nothing you can ever do, nothing you can ever give me will ever be acceptable as a propitiation. But because I want you in my presence, I will satisfy my own wrath with my own sacrifice. There is no God like ours. A God who said, my wrath is righteously, justly poured upon you, and there is no escape. There is no propitiation you can offer. So I'll offer my own propitiation so that I can save you from myself. And that's what God's propitiation is. He saved us from himself. He saved us from the wrath that we rightly, justly deserve. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He is the only God who ever provided his own propitiation. What pity we should have upon every other adherent to every other religion that they are hopeless. They are without hope, offering their propitiations to their false gods and all the while continuing to live under the wrath of the one true God. And make no mistake that when it comes to your relationship with Christ, when it comes you comes to you dwelling in his presence through the propitiation of Christ, just like with the Israelites in the sanctuary, the, the tabernacle, they brought nothing to the table to make this happen that God didn't already give to them. From beginning to end, it was God. And all of this, everything was about the tabernacle and the ark and the altar. Everything about it was to point us to Christ. It was a, it was a foreshadow. Uh, how many of you guys have heard that term before, foreshadow? Um, actually, Quinn, come on up here for a moment. All right. Quinn? I want you to meet my friend George. He's my six-foot friend. He's a Roborowski dwarf hamster. (laughs) He's pretty big for a dwarf hamster, don't you think? Uh, He wants to shake your hand. Social distance, boy. Get over here. All right. I said he wanted to, not that you should. So... Now, look down. Do you see your shadow? Do you see my shadow? Do you see George's shadow? Do you see George's shadow? No. Why don't you see his shadow? Because he's, <laughs> he's not there. Only that that is real casts a shadow. Things that are not real don't cast a shadow. Okay, I want you to do something. Come over here. I want you to trap me so that I can't move, okay? So step on my head right there. (laughs) Try it again. Step on my head. (laughs) I'm just a regular escape artist. So no matter how much you step on my shadow, are you going to trap me? I can always get away, right? Because my shadow is evidence that I'm here, but it's not me. It's evidence that I'm here, unlike George, my six-foot hamster friend it's evidence that I'm here but it's not me okay now turn around that way now I'm going to walk up to either your left side or the right side if you think I'm over here raise this hand <laughs> there you go if you think I'm over here raise this hand okay are you ready very good now how did you know which side I was on I saw his shadow. you saw my shadow thank you Quinn so, he knew which side I was on because he saw my shadow, and he knew if he followed my shadow, it pointed to me. So everything about this tabernacle, everything about the ark, everything about it was a shadow of Christ who was to come. Only that that is real casts a shadow. Christ is real. Um, Quinn, when you were up here, did you see President Trump's shadow? No, because he wasn't here. If it's not there, it doesn't cast a shadow. Christ is real, and he is present. Now, Quinn couldn't trap me with my shadow because even though my shadow is evidence of my presence, it's still not me. It's an image of who I am, but it's not me. So the tabernacle and the ark and all that, it's an image of who Christ is, but it's still not him. And then just as Quinn knew where I was because of my shadow, he knew there's dad's shadow. If I follow it, there's dad. With this shadow, the tabernacle and who God is, if we follow that shadow, if we follow that thread throughout all of scripture, it points to Christ. All of this. The nitpickiness of everything says, I set The boundaries and the terms of what it means to be saved. Not by works, but by faith in Christ, through grace alone, through Christ alone. He set the terms, just like he set the terms all throughout the tabernacle. The altar and the sacrifice, the necessary sacrifice, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, pointed us to Christ And that he is the propitiation. Why? Because there is a law that we are guilty of breaking. Yet the mercy of God. And just so you know, when the sacrifice was made, the priest would take the blood from that sacrifice and sprinkle it on that mercy seat. That mercy seat and the blood go hand in hand. The mercy of God in sending Christ as our propitiation was pointed to by the ark. God wasn't just being nitpicky and setting up all these rituals. He was saying this is a shadow of what is real. This is a shadow of what is to come. It's not what will come, for we know that none are perfected through the law. If you think that sounded really eloquent, it's because it's from the Bible. Uh, We know that none are perfected through the law. So the law Was not the real thing, but it was pointing us to the real thing. The sacrifices, we know that the blood of rams, bulls, and goats is not enough to cleanse us from sin. Hebrews 9 tells us that. It was pointing us to the sacrifice of Christ. It was telling us that our relationship with Christ is based on God's terms and God's terms alone. We don't decide how we're going to come to Christ. We don't decide what is appropriate in coming to Christ. God sets the terms for the propitiation and the sacrifice he provided because he is holy, but he is also merciful. John 1, 14, or John 1 verse 14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says that the Word became flesh. We learn from John 1, verse 1, that the Word is Jesus. For the Word in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. It's speaking of Jesus because then it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the one and only begotten, or one and only Son of the Father. Who's the only Son of the Father? Jesus. Jesus. So if verse 14 tells us that Jesus was the word, and verse 1 tells us the word is God, who does that make Jesus? God. So it says, God became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt in the Greek is the same word for tabernacle. God tabernacled among us. Again, looking back where God says, build me this sanctuary, build me this tabernacle, that I may dwell with you. I want to close with Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. It says then it says so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Remember this is coming after where we read he just said you are without hope. You are without hope and without God in this world. It says so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I'll go ahead and say in 1 Corinthians three sixteen. It says, do you not know that you, here he's speaking of the individual, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. So in these two passages, he says that you, as a Christian, as an individual, you're the temple, the dwelling place of God. And that we as a body, not this building, we as a body are the dwelling place of God in this world. This building is not the house of God. This is the building where the house of God comes together. So, what that means for us, we will never be like Adam in one respect. Adam was exiled from the presence of God. We never will be. We are his dwelling place. We don't come to his dwelling place where when we leave this building, we're no longer in his his presence. The presence of God as a believer goes with you. We will never be exiled from the presence of God. Because of Christ, we can have the presence of God with us always. And it is only because of the work of Christ. God is the one who initiated our relationship with him, and we come to him on his terms and his terms alone. So, how does that change us? Seeing who God is through these passages, that he is a God who is holy, he is a God who is merciful, he is a God who sets the terms terms for relationship with him, the terms of how we relate to him in worship. How does it change your life to know that God wants to be with you how does it change your life that he has already provided everything you need to enjoy his presence? That's my question if you're, for those who are here today who are not believers. God, in Christ, has made it plain and clear he wants to dwell with you. He wants you. He wants you as you are. Not as you think you should be not after you think you've cleaned yourself up enough for him. He's the one who will clean you up. He wants you as you are, and he has provided Christ for that. He's provided everything you need in order for him to be part of your life. As a Christian, how does it change your life to know that you will never be sent away from his presence? How many of us sin every single day, even as Christians? How many of us have times where we think, God must be so disappointed with me? I can't believe I just did that again. You know, if you sin and they say, I can't believe I did that, that means you have too high of an opinion of yourself to start with. Uh, <laughs> when I sin, yeah, I can believe I did that. But that doesn't mean God is stiff-arming me. It doesn't mean God is saying, I don't want you anymore. God chose me knowing full well every single thing I would ever do to turn away from him. He chose me knowing full well every single instance of disobedience and rebellion I would ever commit. And he said, I want you. God won't send you away from his presence because of the things you do when you're a Christian. He chose you knowing full well you're going to do it. Now it doesn't mean we can, well, if you're a Christian... You can live how you want, but, but, and it's a big one, here's the mark of a true Christian. How are you going to want to live in a way that honors and glorifies him? The hallmark of a Christian is that they enjoy the presence of God, and so by the grace of God, they walk in a way that honors and glorifies him because that's what they want. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He says, our problem is, is not that we desire pleasure too much. Our problem is that we desire pleasure too little. He said we're like a child at the beach playing in a puddle when the whole ocean is at our back. We find our satisfaction in the things that this world has to offer when God says in Psalm 16, in his presence there is fullness of joy and in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The hallmark of a Christian is this as the deer pants for the water so my soul pants for you oh god i need the presence of god simply because he is god not because of what he can do for me but because of who he is i want him because of who he is how does it change your life as a believer to know that you will never Be sent away from the presence of the one who is the source of all pleasure, who is the source of all joy. And he is yours forever. And then, lastly, how does it change our church to know that we have been sent out into the world with the presence of God? Remember, we don't come here to be in the presence of God. We go out into the world being sent with the presence of God. How does that change our church, or how should it change our church? What, what should our church look like when we lay hold with a passion the fact that we have been sent out into the world with the presence of God? How does that change your life? How does it change our church? As the praise team comes forward, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that when there was no hope for coming out of the exile from your presence, when the only thing we could ever know was exile, that you stepped into this world and provided the remedy. That you stepped into this world and made a propitiation so that we could enjoy the presence of Almighty God. Father, thank you so much for that. Lord, I, find that, I pray that you will find us a people panting, desperate for your presence in our lives. That you will find us a people desperate for your presence in our church. And that you will find us so overjoyed at your presence that the natural overflow will be making that known to the world around us. Father, you say that you have called us out of darkness so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Father, may we see your marvelous light for how marvelous it truly is. And then that we will tell a dying world of the God who made his own propitiation to save people from his own wrath. God, what a merciful God you are. What an awesome God you are. God, by your grace, let us thirst for you like we never have before. your name we pray. Amen.